This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today, if you want to open your Bibles to that. Before we do that, I want to talk about a event that happened when I lived in Denver in 1999. It was a day of horrors, April 20th, 1999, Columbine High School, right down the road from us, just a few miles from where we lived. We heard about the the massacre, the worst high school shooting in United States history. And I'll never forget the shock and the horror of that day. These high school students are gunning down their classmates, wanting to kill literally hundreds of them. They had planned this for weeks and weeks and months. One girl, reportedly a believer, was confronted by the gunman, asked if she was a Christian. She said yes and was promptly mocked and shot and killed. Another girl escaped with with some of her classmates to the outside, only to be shot while she was fleeing, hit in the back, and was paralyzed from the waist down. Unlike the first girl who had stood firm in the midst of the trial and stood for the Lord and was martyred for her faith, this girl did not know the Lord. And shortly after that incident, her mother, who experienced a long history of mental illness, could not handle the additional stress of the events of her daughter being paralyzed and committed suicide shortly after that. It was a day of horrors. Because of the actions of two young men, lives were changed forever on that day. So we're going to camp in Genesis chapter 3 today. But we want to do a little bit of review because there's some important things that we need to note in the first two chapters of Genesis, which provide us with a description of the origins of the universe, including us. Here's how one author described it. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 display some striking differences. Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, the entire universe. Then verse 2 narrows the focus even more. It zeroes in on the focus to the earth. The earth was formless and void. Genesis 2 then narrows the focus even more. It zeroes in on a garden and on the first man and woman. Whereas Genesis 1 refers to God as Elohim, the powerful creator God, the almighty king of the universe, Genesis 2 and 3 uses the name Yahweh, Elohim, the personal God, who led his people Israel out of Egypt, who led them through the desert, who made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and called them to obey his commandments. And whereas in Genesis 1, God speaks as the Almighty King and it comes to be, and I love this, here in Genesis 2 and 3, the Lord is sketched in more intimate terms as a potter, think of this, who stoops down and fashions a delicate object out of the dirt, as a horticulturist who plants a garden, as a sculptor who fashions a woman from the rib of the man, and then finally as a judge who conducts a hearing and renders a verdict. This larger section that we're in right now, which runs from Genesis 2-4 to the end of chapter 3, begins with man and, women, man and woman being placed in the garden and will end next week with them being expelled from the garden. So that's the section that we're in. And we want to remember as we're reading through this, this was written by Moses And his intended audience, his initial audience, were the children of Israel as they were wandering in the desert. He wanted them to know things about the beginning. But in God's wisdom and sovereignty, these things are also written down for our instruction. So we want to put ourselves in their shoes and think about them hearing these stories for the first time. How did God do this? What happened? What happened? Because what they were experiencing there in the wilderness was certainly not what we heard about in these first two chapters, the end of chapter one. It was very good. And they were in this garden of paradise. So now Moses is going to tell us, the writer's going to tell us what happened. Sidney Gradanus, a theologian, wrote about it this way. He said, what happened to God's good creation? For Israel did not experience the creation as very good, Israel had experienced slavery in Egypt, hard labor from dawn to dusk, no freedom to worship God, their baby boys drowned in the river Nile. Then came the terrible journey through the desert, burning sun, agonizing thirst, lethal snakes. Moses later described this desert as the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. 
It was a tortuous journey dotted with graves. Within 40 years, a whole generation was dead. What happened to God's good creation? Why is life so hard? Why all this suffering and pain? Why do we all die? And you can add your own questions and those of every thoughtful person that you know, all revolving around this theme of suffering and death and pain. And this famous quote, if God is so good, then why is there and fill in the blank? And then the follow-up question, which should haunt every person who's thinking, in light of all the evil, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve? So we're going to look at three primary questions today. The first one is, briefly, how good was it? How good was it? Secondly, spend more time here in Genesis 3, what happened? What happened that changed that it is very good to what they experienced and what we're experiencing? And then thirdly, at the end, we'll talk about the hope. Is there any hope for mankind? So let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for sharing these bits and pieces. We know that there are many unanswered questions that remain, even as we read this text. There are things that we won't know because you haven't revealed them yet. But, Lord, we want to learn. You've written these things down for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So, Lord, give us ears to hear, please, your word. We want to be people who listen attentively, who run to you, who cry out to you, who say, Lord, help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, please help us to learn from you this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what happened, or how good was it? The first question, how good was it? To answer the question, again, we'll review a little bit from Genesis 1 and 2. If you look at the last verse of Genesis 1, he says this, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, when God says it's very good, that's better than your professor, that's better than your mother saying it, that's better than anybody. If God says it's very good, it means it is very good. So that's what, that was his assessment of creation. Uh, chapter 2 takes us back a little bit, and he, as he said, one writer said, he zooms in on the actual creation of the man and woman and the planting of this garden. So it actually happened before he said it was very good. And he said this, Genesis 2.15, this is important for our text today. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, so here's his command, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice how it starts. But... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Abundant provision, every tree but this one. One prohibition. Abundant provision, one prohibition. Then the text goes on and tells us about how Adam first experienced one thing that was not good, and that was the lack of Eve. So after having planted the garden, after having formed the man, after looking at all of the creation, after all the animals are named, God says, this is one thing is not good. So he creates Eve, and at the end of that chapter, we have the final assessment going back to chapter 1. Now, with woman here, it is very good. It's complete. And God rested. So the summary answer to our question, how good was it? It was very good. It was paradise. It was paradise. They lived in harmony with God. They lived in harmony with one another. They lived in harmony with the animals. There was no death. There was no sin. There was nothing bad. There was nothing evil. So the second question, what happened? What happened? We'll spend most of our time here bridging from paradise to what the Israelites in the wilderness were experiencing, to what we experience today, to what those students and teachers and family members and the rest of the nation and anyone else who's been through a horrible day, a day of horrors, whether a small horror or a great horror, will ask this question, what happened? Let's read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, or in, in the Hebrew it is even more emphatic, no, not you will die. Not true. Not you will surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There are so many beginnings here. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's an explanation. How did things come to be? What happened? So in this section we have the genesis, the beginnings of many, many things. We're going to look at six of them uh, today. We're going to look at six different things. In these seven verses, short seven verses, we see... Uh, one quarter of the storyline of the Bible. Christy, if you could flash that, that, line, that one slide up, creation. There we go. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is biblical theology in one slide. We have creation, which we've been studying, Genesis 1 and 2. We have the fall, which begins right here and actually continues to this day. We have redemption, which will begin as we study next week and continues to this day. And ultimately, we have the consummation, which is when Jesus returns. So, in these seven verses, we have the genesis of one quarter of the storyline of the Bible. This is the fall right here. This is where it happened. So, we, have, we had the fall of creation, the marring and the distortion of all that God had made. All that had been very good here devolves into darkness and evil and depravity and despair. What happened? This happened. This event happened. This one event from the perspective of human beings. Now, there's more that we don't know that God has not revealed to us. But this one event from our perspective on planet Earth changed the entire history of the, and the future of mankind. It, this was the day of horrors beyond anything that ever would happen or could happen. So, what are the things that we see beginning here? The genesis, the things that started. What are the beginnings? Six things. There are more, but we want to focus on six today. The first one is the genesis of evil in the world. It's seen in the sudden appearance of a serpent, which, who is a beast of the field. He's identified there. He's more crafty than all the other beasts. He begins to speak. We're not certain exactly how he began to speak. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know where the evil came from. All we know is that all of a sudden, in the form of a serpent, something has come into this good creation that was not there before. Who is the serpent? What's he doing? Where did he come from? We don't know. We don't know at this point in the text. We'll learn later in biblical history, but we don't know right now. But every evil that has occurred and will occur on planet Earth started right here. All of the murders and wars and columbines that have happened, all of the earthquakes and tornadoes, and, and Nepal and all the things that are happening there, the tsunamis, the, the earth being out of order. All of it started right here. The beginning of evil was right here. The second beginning that we see in this was the beginning, sorry, of the distortion, the minimizing, the taking of God's word and twisting it. Notice that for the first time in the creation accounts, the Creator, God, is absent. He's not spoken of in these seven verses. So we don't only, not only want to notice what's here, we want to notice most importantly that the main character is suddenly absent from the scene. He's gone. Very important. When you notice that the Creator is not around, beware. When He's not present, when you're not aware of His presence, that's a good time to stop and run back to Him and ask Him what's happening. So let's look at the way that the beginnings of the distortion, the minimization, additions to the words of God, the word of God started. We've got a number of slides here. The first one is this. There we go. In chapter 1, as one of those authors mentioned, God is called Elohim, just a, a 
kind of a generic name for God, but it's the almighty God, the creator God, the king of the universe God, but not a personal God. And then in chapter 2, we hear this Yahweh Elohim. Well, what the serpent does is he goes back to chapter 1, and he uses just God. And unfortunately, Eve falls into his trap. Instead of calling God Yahweh Elohim, my covenant God, the God, the personal God who loves me, she falls into his use of God, the generic God, the creator God, the one who's unknowable, who in the beginning created and did all these formless things, but not the one who stooped down and took the clay as a potter and formed me as a sculptor and planted this garden as a horticulturist. So they change the use of the word back to what happened before. Second slide. The serpent says this, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree? It's a subtle question. If it's a true question, all Eve has to do is correct him and tell him what God said. But it was that his intention. We'll find out in a few verses that it was not. He plants seeds of doubt and suspicion and discontent. He's testing her. He's probing. What does she know? How is she going to respond to this temptation? Third, God says, back in chapter 2, you may surely eat of every tree. So this abundant provision for them. That's how God starts versus Eve's response to the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees. She does not stress the abundance. She doesn't tell the serpent, this is what God said. Isn't God amazing? Look what he gave us, all the trees. There's only this one tree over here that we can't eat from. But let me focus on all that he's given us. Instead, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. There's a minimization of what God said, not stressing the goodness and the abundant provision of God. She stresses the prohibition then later. God says in the next slide... This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve calls it the tree in the midst. Why is that? We don't really know, but there's a subtle change here. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, did Adam not tell her that's what the name of it was? Did she not know? Was she just locating it and that's okay? It's not a big deal. But we should be asking these questions. Why did she change from what God said to her description of this tree? Next slide. God says, silence. I didn't say anything about not touching the tree. And Eve says, we shall not even touch it lest we die. So she adds to the word of God. Next slide. God says, you will surely die. Definitive. If you do this, you will surely die. But Eve changes it, lest you die. Shouldn't even touch it, lest you die. Again, it's minimizing. The language shifts, downshifts. The intensity of what God had said. This is where we have to be so careful. This is the genesis of biblical distortion. It happened right here. God says, you will surely die. And the serpent, as I already alluded, says, not you shall surely die. Here's where he, for the first time, directly contradicts the word. Up to this point, it's been subtle. How often does that happen with us? Subtle shifts away. That's not an important verse. That's not, an impo- that's not a big deal, whether we do that or that. There are these big verses that are really important. The the big ten, the big two, and love one another as I've loved you. As long as I get that right, everything else is kind of superfluous at this point. Jesus says, what? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. So Satan here, he just is a frontal assault. He knows Eve does not know the word. She's added to it. She's minimized it. She's changed the way that God said it and changed it to a certain thing. She doesn't really know what the name of the tree is potentially, just knows where it is. And so he says to her now, frontal attack, not you shall surely die. God is a liar. So he's calling God a liar. Direct contradiction. Then God says in the earlier chapters, in the image of God, they were created. They were already like God. Chapters 1 and 2, we know this man and this woman were created in the image of God. They were already like God. And Satan says, if you eat it, God knows, the liar, the one who's deceiving you, he knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. Again, a subtle lie, but a lie just the same. They had previously, prior to this, known nothing but good. It is very good. There's nothing evil. There's nothing bad that they had ever known in their experience until this moment. 
from this point forward forevermore, good will be redefined as evil, and evil will be redefined as good. Bruce Waltke uh, wrote this in light of chapter 1. This statement used by the woman and the serpent is surely ironic. Good is no longer rooted in what God says enhances life, but in what people think is desirable to elevate life. They distort what is good into what is evil. Satan smoothly maneuvers Eve into what may appear as a sincere theological discussion. Now listen to this. This is very important. But he subverts obedience and distorts perspective by emphasizing God's prohibition and not his provision, reducing God's command to a question, doubting his sincerity, defaming his motives, and denying the truthfulness of the threat. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, this was the very first conversation about God. It's the origin of man-centered theology, right here, the beginnings. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, said, it is the serpent's word against God's And the first doctrine to be denied, the first doctrine to be denied is judgment. God will not judge. There is no judgment. There is no hell. There is nothing of the kind. God knows, and I have a better way. Walter Brueggemann wrote, God is treated here as a third person. This is not a speech to God or with God, something that they had enjoyed up to this point, but about God. Listen to this. Brilliant. The serpent was the first to, pre- to practice theology in the place of obedience. The serpent was the first to practice theology in the place of obedience. So once we have the presence of evil, the genesis of evil, and the genesis of distorting and maligning and changing God's word, we are on a slippery slope. Remember, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is nowhere to be seen in these first Seven verses. The third thing that we see as a beginning is the genesis of lies and deception. We're not sure. We don't know if Adam added to the command. Did Adam tell Eve not to touch it? We don't know. That would have been a lie, so that would have been the first lie. Or if Eve deceiving herself, but by not knowing the truth word for word, she was set up for deception. Later in the Bible, we'll learn that this serpent who became a snake is Satan. Somehow this creature was controlled by Satan. So as we read forward and we get to the end of the book to Revelation, we'll find out what the identity of this serpent is. But the Israelites at this time as they were reading didn't know it, and we don't know it just from this particular text. What we know is something unusual is happening. An animal is speaking, and he's speaking evil things. Later we'll find out who he is. The serpent tempted him, tempted her, She didn't have to respond to the temptation. So temptation and deception are two different things. She was tempted. She responded. She was deceived. Think of times that you would have a child lie to you, and you see right through it. You're not deceived by that. So a lie doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be deception. In this particular case, though, we see both the genesis of lies and the genesis of deception. Here was the lie. First one, not you will surely die, a direct contradiction. That ultimately proved to be false. Now pay attention to this. Everything that the serpent says proves to be false. Everything God says proves to be true. That's always been the case. It's always true. No matter how many half-truths are woven in, ultimately what the serpent says leads us to deception. Ultimately what God says leads us to truth. Here's another lie. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. The truth is, they were already like God, as I mentioned. They will become increasingly unlike God from this point forward. Again, God never lies. Here at Grace Church, we believe God never lies. He is incapable of lying. It is not part of who God is. Everything He has ever said, from let there be light to I'm coming back, The only one that we're waiting on is I'm coming back. We know because of every other one of the billions of promises he's made that have already been fulfilled that he will certainly come back. Everything that this serpent says, cloaked and twisted in whatever way he wants to do it, ultimately is a lie. What God says is true. So notice at this point, these these things that we've seen, the genesis of evil, the genesis of the distortion of the word, the genesis of lies and deception... All of these are horrors, but it's not nearly as horrible. What made this day the the day of horrors is what happens next, the next three things. The first one, 
of these last three, so this is number four, is the genesis of temptation. Listen to the wording. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took. So the seeds of doubt and suspicion and deceit that had already been sown by this serpent found fertile ground here. So temptation has occurred not because there were lies, not because even there was deception, but because they were received. Those desires that were already in her linked up. And here's what the Apostle James says about this in the New Testament. Listen to this very carefully. Think about this, these verses from the perspective of Adam and Eve. Think if James, writing hundreds, thousands of years later, were right there ready to speak to Adam and Eve at this moment when the serpent came in. And then think of your own temptations. Think of the times when you face the tempter, whether in the form of a talking snake or whatever your tempter happened to be this morning or this past week. Listen to what James writes. Blessed, Adam and Eve, and each one of us, is the man who remains steadfast. Are you a Christian? Yes. Why? And that was your last thing that you ever said. Oh, may it be true for all of us. That's the last thing that we ever say. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Those are the words of God. That's a promise of God. Believe it. It will come to pass. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God's not in the picture right here. He's still ruling. He's allowing it for some purpose beyond which we can understand. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Absolutely true. You will never be tempted by God. You will be tested, but you will never be tempted by God. But, and here's the emphasis, each person is tempted when, here's what tempta- when temptation occurs, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So there's something out there, but that in and of itself doesn't mean that I will be tempted. Tempting comes as what's in me, this desire, links up with that. And now temptation occurs. So we have the genesis of temptation. Bruce Waltke said, Eve's decision gives priority to pragmatic values, to aesthetic appearance, and to sensual desires over God's word. So the apple, which was a good thing, it was created, it was in the garden, it was very good. It's a very good thing. It's just an apple or whatever it was. I, it was, I think it was actually cilantro in fruit form, you know, but <laughs> you knew I'd get that in. So it's a, it's a fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was, but here it is. It's just a piece of fruit, God. What is the big deal? Okay, but in that moment, it became something more important to her than the words of God. That's what idolatry is. And that brings us to the fifth Genesis, which we'll actually look at a little bit more next week. I'm not going to comment much on this one. It's the Genesis of death, but death occurred right here. It's going to become more obvious next week's text, but just as James instructed us that temptations provoke desires, desires lead to sin, and sin ultimately and inexorably and unalterably leads to death. Those are God's words. They will prove true. They have proven true for many millennia now. Death has become the greatest fear of mankind. We do everything we can to avoid it. We go to the gym. We joke about it. We don't know what to do at funerals. We don't know what to say when people are dying. Death is unnatural. We all know that. We understand that. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. It's unnatural. It shouldn't have been. It wasn't in the garden. There was no death. It's a horrible thing. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it came to pass the moment they ate. Death has been called the last enemy, but it's not the greatest enemy. In the midst of all these other horrific things that had their beginnings right here, there's one thing worse than death, and that is sin. And that brings us to the sixth thing. Death is indeed, as the scripture says, the last enemy to be defeated. But the worst enemy is sin. So in these seven verses, all that God created, all that he spoke, this powerful, 
Elohim, creator God, spoke into being over the seven days, if you're a young earth person, or over the seven periods of time, if you're an old earth person, as long as you believe that God did this, okay, God did, he created in, in these seven verses, everything is twisted and undone. And the worst of all was the sin. So here we have the genesis of sin, the first sin on planet earth. They desired something more than they got than God, so they sinned. They violated the single prohibition. They said, God said, don't eat, we eat. They listened to a different voice of authority. Now be careful here. What should they have done? What should Eve have done? What should Adam have done in the face of this? Because these things were written down for our instruction. What should we do? when we face these temptations, these shiny things that in and of themselves might not even be bad, but they're calling us away from the Word of God. What voice is ruling over the decisions that we make and the actions that we pursue? The fact that Adam was with her, with Eve, and that he knowingly ate what God had forbidden. See, the Scripture tells us that Eve was deceived and Adam was not. Later, Paul will tell us that. Eve was deceived by the serpent, Adam was not deceived. He willingly chose to sin. So the fact that Adam was with her and that he knowingly ate what God had forbidden indicates that Adam's sin was both an act of conscious rebellion against God and a failure to carry out his divinely ordained responsibility to guard or keep both the garden and the woman that God had created as a helper fit for him. The disastrous consequences of Adam's sin cannot be overemphasized, resulting in the fall of mankind the beginning of every kind of sin, suffering, and pain, as well as the physical and spiritual death for the human race. This was an unmatched day of horrors. Columbine was a day of horrors. This is beyond compare. Every Columbine that's ever occurred, every evil thing that's ever happened, every word, every thought, that's ever been contrary to the Word of God began right here. What are some of the kinds of sins that are seen? He says, the beginning of every kind of sin. So some of them will be things like this, the sin of unbelief. We all experience doubt, all of us. We're, we're going we're gonna to run up against something. Here's a doubt. The doubt comes. Did God really say that's a doubt? The doubt in and of itself is not bad. It's when doubt leads to unbelief, which is choosing consciously, I will believe this voice rather than God's voice. So when we doubt, what do we do? We run to God. <laughs> one, one commentator said, Eve should have run. She should have gone streaking, literally, across, <laughs> across the garden, either to Adam, but more importantly, where is God? This is new information. When you get new information, when things come, when doubts come, run to God. Run to somebody who knows God better than you. And if that person doesn't lead you to God, then go to find somebody else who will. Run to God. Seems like a relatively minor issue, doesn't it? A piece of fruit. What? It's just a piece of fruit. Think how insignificant it is. But think about how serious unchecked doubt and the resulting sin of unbelief is. Whoever believes in him, John would write later, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those are the words of God. They are true. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, exactly what the serpent did, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is where? In his son, nowhere else. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Those are the words of God. They are eternally true. You can trust them. Another kind of sin we observe is the, the, the beginning of covetousness and idolatry. They saw something, they wanted it, 
and they wanted it more than God. It was a good thing, as I mentioned. It was a very good thing. The tree of the knowledge and good and evil, of good and evil, used properly, that's a wonderful gift. In God's right timing, that would be a wonderful gift. But out of God's order, away from God's command, it becomes idolatry and covetousness. In this case, what was beautiful and very good, the fruit, proved to be an allurement to disobedience. And Paul would write to the Colossians, put to death, Eve, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Eve, don't give in. Don't do it, Eve. You have no idea what that little piece of fruit, that tiny little sin, that little doubt about whether God is good or not so good, where that is going to lead, because you cannot imagine the horrors that you are going to unleash on the earth. Don't do it. And then the last, another Genesis that we see here is the, uh, the type of sin is the genesis of self-sufficiency and self-atonement. Their eyes were opened. After they ate, they knew they were naked. They, so they sewed fig leaves together. They hid. All of their attempts to work out their situation came through their own understanding, their own wisdom, their own supposed knowledge. Again, what should they have done? What did we say this morning? If you confess your sins, he... They should have run to God. Even after they sinned, they should have run to God to say, is there any hope for us now? We've blown it. We've listened to the serpent. One theologian said, the couple's solution to this new enigma is freighted with folly. That was a good phrase. Freighted with folly. Having committed the sin themselves and now living with its immediate consequences, separation from God. They attempt to alleviate the problem themselves. Rather than driving them back to God, their guilt leads them into a self-atoning, self-protecting procedure. They must cover themselves. Brothers and sisters, don't do it. When you sin, you're going to sin. You're going to sin because of this. This is where the concept of original sin came from. The original sin wasn't their sin. The original sin was how we were infected because of this. Every one of us. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Brothers, somebody says he's not without sin. He's lying. Confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you. Run to God. Believe that this Yahweh is not just Elohim, distant God up on the mountain saying, I'm going to strike you dead. He's also the covenant God. The covenant has already begun. Elohim, Yahweh, is here. Paul would write to the Roman church, which he had never seen, as he's, he's just declaring the gospel to them. He says, therefore, talking about this day, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, sin came into the world through Adam's sin and Eve's sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We were infected as they sinned, and then we have taken up the mantle and sinned ourselves. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin isn't counted where there's no law. Yet death, because of the promise of God, in the day that you eat it, you will die. Here's the promise of God. Death reigned, reigned in life from Adam to Moses until the law came, even over those whose sinning wasn't like Adam's sin. They didn't consciously sin. Because of this sin and because of the sin that's infected us, death now reigned. Because of sin, the worst enemy, the last enemy was reigning over planet Earth. It was no longer very good. I'm going to apologize in advance for reading a lengthy quote. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to listen. This is from David Clarkson, who was a pastor he wrote in the 1600s. And he wrote at a time when the uh, average life expectancy was in the 30s, late, maybe into the 40s. Most children, by far the highest percentage of children, died in infancy, never made it. It was, a, it was a bleak time. We didn't have medicine. We didn't have modern things. There were still wars and rumors of wars. People were ruling. This guy was a, a pastor who was being persecuted for his faith. But all of those things to him did not add up 
to the gravity of sin. So listen, and again, I apologize for bludgeoning us, but there's a purpose in this. Listen carefully. The least sin, David Clarkson writes, is infinitely evil. There's more evil in it than the tongue of men or angels can express. It's a greater evil than any poverty, the greatest torment, loathsome sickness, and the dreadfulest death, nay, than hell itself. The least sin is infinitely evil because it's against him who is infinitely good, because injurious to an infinite God, an offense of infinite majesty, a contempt of infinite authority, an affront to infinite sovereignty, an abuse of infinite mercy, a dishonor to infinite excellency, a provocation of infinite justice, a contrariety to infinite holiness, and a reproacher of infinite glory, an enemy to infinite love. Consider what you do by continuing in sin. I think it's just a piece of fruit. You harbor an evil in your souls that is unspeakably worse than hell. You do things frequently which it was better you should die 10,000 times than do once. What greater occasion of sorrow than sin, the greatest evil? What fitter object of hatred than that which is infinitely hateful? Eternity is little enough to bewail such an infinite evil. Oh, think not much to employ some of your time in bewailing it. The least sin deserves infinite punishment. The offense is infinite, and therefore God's justice is obliged to punish every sin infinitely. After a thousand millions of years' expenses of wrath upon sinners that are impenitent, this treasury will be as full as when first opened. Oh, then, make haste to repent, that your sins may be blotted out. For if the Lord come to reckon with you and find any one sin on the score unblotted out, your payment must be eternal torments." The least sin cannot be expiated without the infinite satisfaction. Nothing can satisfy God for the injury of the least sin but that which is infinite. The injury is infinite. Therefore, nothing can satisfy for it but that which is infinite. If all the creatures on earth, if all the glorious saints in heaven, if all the glorious angels in the presence of God should offer to sacrifice their lives for the expiation of one sin, it would not be accepted. It would not and could not be sufficient for their lives, being finite creatures, are but of finite value. The least sin is the cause of all the evils that we count miseries in the world. Whatsoever is fearful or grievous or hateful owes its birth to sin. Is poverty a burden? Sin should be much more burdensome. It, there had been no poverty but for sin. Is the cruelty of men, the anger of friends, the contention of neighbors, the unkindness of children, and affliction? We should be much more afflicted with sin. Do ye complain of pains and languish under bodily distempers and sicknesses? Is the wrath of God a terror to you? Let sin be more terrible. For we had never known any such things as wrath in God had it not been for sin. Nothing but smiles and promises and mercies. Think of that. Are you afraid of death? The king of terrors should apprehend you. Be more afraid of sin. The body of men had never known, had never feared death had it not been for sin. Do ye tremble at the apprehension of hell? Those everlasting torments tremble more at the approach of sin. For there had been no hell, no devil, but for sin. It was sin that prepared both tormentors and torments. It was sin that digged that bottomless pit and overshadowed it with darkness and filled it with tortures. It was sin that kindled the wrath of God, which like a river of brimstone nourishes and continues those torments to eternity. There had been no poverty, anger, vexation, or sickness, but for sin. We hate we avoid, we mourn for all of these. Much more should we hate and avoid and mourn for sin, which is the cause of them. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. sin. One lie was enough to bring defilement the paradise. How many times have I lied? One doubt unchecked, and the way we check doubts is by running to the Savior, led to unbelief and the horrors of sin and death. How many times have I chosen unbelief over faith? One angry thought was enough. How many times have I had angry thoughts? One lustful or covetous desire was enough to bring defilement to paradise. 
And how many times have I experienced lust or covetousness? One self-righteous or self-sufficient thought was enough. How many times have I exalted myself and believed that I could live without the word and without prayer and without complete, utter dependence on God for every breath and every heartbeat? Paul would sum it up this way, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Last point. Is there any hope? If you've been around for a while, you, th- you know that we believe there is. Columbine was a day of horrors. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget, we were just starting the church in Denver. We were still meeting in a school. The, the Sunday after that, we sang the song, As long as I have breath, I will praise you. But a far greater day of horrors occurred in the garden, opened the gates for Columbine and every atrocity that's ever happened, evil thing in the history of man. But even the garden, was not the darkest day. There was a more horrible day. Stuart Townend and Keith Getty wrote a song that starts like this. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day. Christ on the road to Calvary. Tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. Oh, to see the pain and really see it written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Think of what we just read. He bore it all. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. Now the daylight flees, and now the ground beneath quakes as its maker, Elohim, bows his head. The song doesn't end there. I encourage you to listen to it. It's a wonderful song. It's called Power of the Cross. Every evil thought, now think of this, every evil deed, let it sink in for my sins. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Redemption starts right here. Be astounded. Feel the weight of the absolute, utter travesty of this moment. You think of Jesus. He's walking. He's carrying his cross, finally too heavy and Simon had to bear it for him. He took the cross. He took every sin, every columbine, every lie, every piece of fruit that was inappropriately taken at the wrong moment. The punishment for all of that. Because the punishment for that one sin was all the evil that we see. And he bore it all. I'm, in so many ways, I'm sorry to have bludgeoned us, you and me, with all of those words, the reminders of the ugliness and the destructive power of sin. But it was for our good, and it is for our good, because unless we understand, really understand the horror of sin, we will never see the glory of the gospel. So there is an answer to our final question. It's a resounding yes because of the promises of God. I asked at the beginning, how good was it? And the answer was, it was very good. But think about a day that's going to come when it won't be just very good. It's going to be perfect. When Jesus returns, he is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. We will behold him face to face. We will understand who he is and what he's done. And there will never be another temptation 
to think he's withholding good from me that Eve experienced on that day. It will never happen again because we'll see him face to face. We'll know that this is the one who bore the weight of my sin, of those two shooters' sins, of every sin that's ever been committed on the cross. He took it all. He received the punishment that sin is not just expiated and taken away. It is atoned for. It is turned away from us. It is absorbed by this one. That day, that perfect day, where it's no longer just very good, but absolutely perfect, will eradicate every effect of what Adam and Eve did because God's mercy for those who believe in him, for those who say yes to him. Are you a believer? Yes, I say yes to you. For those who believe, God's mercy will triumph over the judgment that they deserve. One of the people who's going to be there with us on that day will be the girl who experienced the horrors of Columbine, was shot in the back and paralyzed through the ministry of a young woman from our church. She heard the gospel. Her father had moved her way up in the mountains to protect her. And this girl from our church traveled every Sunday morning, 45 minutes, to pick her up. She had met her at the community college. She traveled 45 minutes to pick her up and bring her to church. And then another 45 minutes back and back every Sunday so that she could come. And this, this young woman who had been paralyzed in a wheelchair received Jesus, believed in Jesus, came to see that the greatest tragedy in her life was not that she had been shot. As a matter of fact, her testimony was, I'm, I'm glad this happened. She had come to see that the horror of sin of her own sin and the horror of Columbine had helped her to come to see that there is a great glory in the gospel. So one day she'll be dancing with the Lord and I can't wait. Listen, you, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we implore you, every one of you, everyone in this room, every one of your neighbors, every one of your co-workers, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, to be sin. Let's pray that that verse will never be lightly glossed over. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.